Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, you're here in Zechariah. Zechariah. Notice, if you will, some of the entry words that are given here. Uh, tonight, our, our goal, our desire really is to focus uh, really on the broader scheme of Zechariah, not so much these first six verses, but really to settle down so that we live this place, we've got a good grasp on the in introduction of Zechariah and some consideration about what the Lord through prophecy is going to reveal to him and he to us as is contained in the scriptures. You'll note there some important things that I'll just point out. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, it is the eighth month in the year of Darius or Darius, uh, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. You'll note in verse number 7, again, the date that is given in verse 7, also in chapter 7, you'll find dates, a second date here in verse 7, that it's the 11th month, which is the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, or Darius, in which the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying... And so here seems to be something not only of Zechariah's calling, uh, but also you have a time stamp that is given. It's the second year of Darius. Uh, and there's a number of Dariuses in the Bible. Uh, probably one of the most familiar is found in Daniel uh, in the fifth chapter and in the sixth chapter. It was this Darius uh, in the sixth chapter that signed a decree. Uh, we call him Darius the Mede, that he signed a decree that for a space of time no man should worship save unless they were worshiping unto him. And of course there was an old Jew man uh, named the Daniel, the prophet, a man of excellent spirit in uh, chapter 6 and verse 3 is given. And he prayed to God in the morning, the noon, and at night. And they set, these, these Persians did, they set this trap. And Daniel knew that it was a trap. And the aged man of God continued his piety and his loyalty to the supreme controller and the supreme king of all the world, and he prayed. And so he's arrested, and he was cast into the den of lions. And you'll remember how God miraculously delivered him. Well, that Darius, or Darius the Mede, is not the same as this Darius that's here mentioned in Zechariah chapter number 1. They are different individuals. This Darius is commonly known by a surname, uh, Heistapes, Heistapes. Uh, and he inherited the realm from the previous ruler who had no children and died by his own hand. And this gentleman called Darius in the scriptures uh, as kind of a, a royal moniker, but known in a personal sense as Hyostapes. He would uh, begin around 521 BC his reign. And unlike the previous regents would take a very warm view towards the Jewish people and would allow them to relaunch the building of the temple. But back to Zechariah for a moment. Zechariah is one that seems to have been born in Babylon. He knew not of the land of Jerusalem. He would be his, really his relatives, his father's grandfather were carried away. And uh, they were carried away into captivity, and Jerusalem was utterly scuttled by Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Turn over, if you will, to uh, Jer Jeremiah chapter 52, just for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 52. This would be a wonderful passage. If we, if we had something of a, a lengthy class time, I would encourage you to read the last several chapters, and not at the risk of 
not paying attention to all of the prophet of Jeremiah, but particularly focusing in because Jeremiah is in the phase of wonder, a warning of the children of Israel. Prophecies are given unto him. And when you get to the last couple of chapters, uh, he, he writes a number of things. For instance, in chapter 51 uh, and verse 59, the word, I'm in Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 59, the word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sarai, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, uh, when he went with Zedekiah, the king Judah, into Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And so this Uriah was a quiet prince. And Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all the words that are written against Babylon. I find that to be very interesting because they've yet to be carried away in captivity. And long before they're actually carried away in captivity, the word of God has already come by the mouth of Jeremiah as to all of the judgment that God is going to bring against Babylon. Now, I do not think for a moment that Babylon will heed to any of this at this particular time. You come down to chapter 52, the king Zedekiah is 21 years old. When he began to reign, he reigns 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. And the scripture says in verse 3 that the anger of the Lord, um, it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah till he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. You come down and begin to reading in verse number 8, you'll find about the army, uh, the army of the Chaldeans uh, that would overtake Zedekiah and this king, and they would carry, carry him away into the king of Babylon, into Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon them. In verse number 10 of chapter 52, you'll see that the king of Babylon slew the sons, slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He slew also all the princes of Judah and Riblah, Put out the eyes of Zedekiah in verse number 11. And then you begin to read in verse 14 and following, uh, the army of the Chaldeans or the army of the Chaldeans were with the captain of the guard. They break down all the walls of Jerusalem and round about. And Nebuchadnezzar, or rather Nebuzardan, the captain of the guards, carried away captive certain poor of the people. And the residue of the people remained in the city and those that fell away that fell to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitudes. Now I'm going to take a space of time here and move toward the end of the chapter. But if you would read down from verse 16 through maybe verse 26 and 27, you'll find some of the enumerated items in which the king of Babylon carried away with him. This wasn't just an open invitation to come and visit the distant relatives that, that may be in Babylon. This wasn't a quick transplant. This was a horatious event that was to occur in the timeline of the nation of Israel, particularly the kingdom of Judah. Notice in verse 28, I think this is an important instant to be made. This is the people. Um, in verse 27, he ends with, Thus Judah was carried away captive out of his own land. Verse 28, this is the people who Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,000 Jews and three and 20. In the 18th year, so it's, how many years difference is that? 11 years. 11 years later, Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive from Jerusalem, 830 and two persons. Five years later, in the, 20, in the three and 20th year, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, carried away of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. Then you can continue to find there about the remnant of what would happen to Jehoiakim, king of Judah. But I just wanted to show you that in Jerusalem to set, or rather in Jeremiah, to set a mindset of what occurs when we talk about Nebuchadnezzar carrying away captive the children of Israel. The temple that Solomon had built and had de dedicated has faded from scene. Uh, it has been destroyed. 
the, the treasures thereof have been looted and carried away. And there are three systematic diasporas that will occur, each with a group, uh, not to mention the first one that would occur all the poor people being taken out of the city or certain poor, but to be followed by three systematic pulling aways, if you will. In one of those, a young man. In fact, several young men were taken. And you'll recall that written in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And one of those three, they were carried away into captivity. And you can see how terribly difficult this time frame is. If we were to continue reading in chapter 50, 51, and 52, you'll find out that as they breach the city, they burn all of the houses that are there to be found in Jerusalem altogether. And so there's a great depletion that has happened in Jerusalem. Now, uh, they'll go unto Babylon. And it's during this one of these three captivities that Iddo and Berkiah, that would be the grandfather and the father of Zechariah, are carried away into captivity. But at least Zechariah is born in Babylon. And then something fantastical is about to happen. Something that even today is mentioned in the annals of all of history. I want you to turn over to Ezra. I want you to turn over to Ezra. I want you to note chapter 1. And I'm moving quickly for those that are, have done deep studies in this area, continual studies. Hopefully this fires up, you know, your mind a little bit. For those that are unaware, then I hope to set a little bit of an abridged history before you. So you have a cataclysmic event that's occurred in Jeremiah. And they will remain in that land, Jeremiah chapter 29. They came to Jeremiah and they said, what should we do when we're in the land? In Jeremiah chapter 29, he says, seek the peace of the city. Get married, or rather build houses, get married, have children, seek the peace of the city. You're going to be there. You're going to be there until God sends one as to allow you to return to the land of your fathers. Now, you're in Ezra. Ezra, one of the priests of the land and the people of the Jews, in verse number 1 of chapter 1, now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of who? Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and let him build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And then in the following verses there, there's a number of basins and vessels and such that they carry back with them. And then from chapter 2, we won't take time, but uh, if you want a good exercise uh, for your tongue and lips, uh, to move in ways that normally with English grammar they do not, then you read through chapter 2 and chapter 3 uh, down to the end of, of uh, really chapter 2, somewhat into chapter 3. But in these passages, you kind of have uh, a list of individuals uh, that has been carried away from the city and those that will be uh, returning of the people of Israel. There will be a host of them return. Uh, and they, they're set up by tribes. And in chapter 3, they in the seventh month, they're come. The children of Israel, they're in the cities. Chapter 3 and verse 1, the people gathered themselves as one man. And when Cyrus sent them back, there are two major names that Ezra focuses on. Zerubbabel and Joshua. 
Zerubbabel would be the regent authority. He will be the authority. Joshua will be the chief high priest. So if you look, one is to be the civil authority and the other one to be something of the religious authority that is in the land. And here in verse number 2 of chapter 3, Jeshua, the son of Jadok, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, his brethren, built the altar of God unto Israel to burn offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set up, uh, and they set the altar upon the bases and such, and so forth the scripture will record. I'll have you note a few things. Here are these some 50,000 people. Now, there's not 50,000 of them listed, but they represent the heads of families. Approximately 50,000 Jews will return. They are descendants of those that were born in Jerusalem and were carried to Babylon in one of those three captivities that Jeremiah mentions. And there'll be about 50,000 of them return. Jerusalem is a different place than what they remember being told. In fact, some of the very old men, it is a different place than what they remembered, perhaps in the fondness of a child's mind. Many of the houses have been destroyed. There's now new people groups that are abiding in land that historically had belonged and had was given by Almighty God to certain Jewish families and their descendants. There's very little left of the temple, exception for some of the, uh, the extreme portions that, that remained undestroyed. Uh, there's no place to congregate there. There's no altar that can be built upon the temple. It's eradicated. There's no wall around Jerusalem as a city center. It's open for raids to come hither and yon. They were not given a lap of luxury to return to. They were given an opportunity in which now they will build the temple of God. And I find such wonderful instruction here in Ezra, how that before they ever put their hand to erecting the first beam, before they ever put themselves to moving the first stone or setting the foundation, that the first thing they did as one man in a heart smitten with grand unity under the authority of the Almighty God, the first thing they did is begin to worship God with offerings unto Him. And they could have in their mind and in their imagination decided that let's build the temple and then worship God. But no, instead you'll find the opposite is true. They began to worship Him once they arrived and then began the building of this edifice that Cyrus had civilly allowed and that God had dictated and stirred in Cyrus's heart. And you would think that'd be the end of the story, wouldn't you? You would think that that's the great end of a wonderful story. Judgment fell upon Jerusalem. There's hardship. There's famine. There's death. There's destruction. It ends with a series of carrying aways. They've dwelt for their period of time in, in uh, Babylon. And, and now God has stirred the heart of a new king, Cyrus. And he is going to be benevolent towards the Jews. He is going to write them provision. He is going to give them authority. Yes, they're going to return to the land. 50,000 of them return into the land. Yes, they begin to worship God. Yes, they begin to build the temple. You would think that that would, that would be it. And success would be theirs. I want you to turn, if you will, in chapter number 4. Get in chapter number 4, particularly in verse 1. He says, Now the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivities builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. And they came to Zerubbabel, to the chief of the fathers, and said unto them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Asher Hadon, the king of Asher, which brought us up hither. 
Esherhaden is a reference to the Assyrian king, uh, the Ninevite king that would come and be part of the carrying away of the ten tribes of Israel. These are Samaritans. That's what they are. If you write in your Bible, you write Samaritans. Esherhaden had brought in these foreigners and he had replaced the former ten tribes in their domain, the ministry that Jonah had, the ministry that Elisha had, the ministry that Elijah had. He had taken those ten northern tribes and carried them away to captivity around 700, uh, 722 B.C. and he had replaced them with these individuals. That's where they came from. It's not a stretch to call them Samaritans, as in John chapter 4, Samaritans. And he says, we worship the same God, worship Him the same way. Let's build with you. You know, I'd submit, and though this isn't the context of a message, that any time you desire to see God build something great, you'll always be proposed with a shortcut. There's always a theology or a practice or a people, as it is in this case, that will come alongside and self-identify that they're the same as you and that they can be trusted and that you can let them build and it's going to be all right and at the end of the day we can sing theological kumbayas unto God and everything will be wonderful and hunky-dory. Well, notice in verse 3, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief fathers of Israel said unto them, you have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us to do. Well, notice if you will in verse number 4. Then the people of the land, read Samaritans, weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Verse 5, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of who? Darius, or Darius, king of Persia. Do you remember him? You'll find about him in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1. They'll frustrate them. They'll do anything necessary. Now, if you continue reading, you'll find out that in the, media, in, in the intermediate, there's a king named Artaxerxes. He's a regional king. And they will take these Samaritans with their hired counselors and they will send a legal briefing, as it were, to declare that these Jewish people are zealots looking to throw off the shackles of Persia and to do them harm. And this will go back and forth over a period of time. But if you want the conclusion of the matter of what happens, you turn to chapter 4 and verse 24. In chapter 3, they built the foundation. They've really just got it started. And that's when these Samaritans come and say, let us build with you. They decline. Now the Samaritans begin to frustrate them. The Samaritans begin to undermine them. The Samaritans begin to legally charge them. And notice what happens in verse 24. Then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, time will move on, but essentially, let me give you the timeline. It's 538 B.C. when Cyrus says, y'all can go. And these 50,000 people get all their provision, they head across. And it takes them a space of time, and then it will take them a little time to set up and get present. And we come now to about 536 when they begin to lay the, the, uh, the foundational pieces for the tabernacle. 536 B.C. The second year 
of Darius the Hittite, or Darius the, the Persian rather, that second year is an important time. Between the time that the work ceased until the time that it would recommence would be 16 years. These heathen in the land, these Samaritans, had locked up the building of the temple for 16 years. And there really did not even seem to be a way in which they could gather the resources and move forward. They had put a lot of hope in Cyrus that he had an authority that would allow them to engage in the continuation. But about five years later, Cyrus would die. Another king would reign in his stead, and he'd be carried away with a war in Egypt that would adversely affect the area of Jerusalem. And it wouldn't be till the third king arises, Darius, and only in his second year would the consideration be made in which they could continue to rebuild. If we continue reading in Ezra, you'll find out that four years later, in that second year of Cyrus to the sixth year of Cyrus, they were able to start and complete the building of the temple to the Almighty God. Sixteen years they waited. It's interesting that Cyrus had sent not only legal guarantees, but there was provision given. And yet during these 16 years, it seems that there's a number of things that took a toll upon them. In fact, I'll give you just a few things that occurred while they had so much trouble getting back to doing what they should have been doing. Number one, they did have these confounding adversaries, didn't they? The Samaritans. It's tough to move forward and do anything wrong when, or do anything right and see anything accomplished for God when in fact every step forward that you make is being constantly countered by those that oppose you. Frustrated their building, moved their tools, hid their tools, broke their equipment, stole their goods. You couldn't move forward. Did everything possible, even expending money to get counselors that legally would see the work ceased. But the Samaritans were not the only reason the children of Israel struggled in which to see the temple rebuilt. In fact, Haggai chapter 1 talks about there being a great famine in the land. We know from the history of the time that there was a war that was present in the area. That slowed things down. That stole resources. But there seems to me to be a couple of things that are constant among them. That is, number one, there seems to be something of selfish indulgence in which they had guaranteed themselves to. If you're in Zechariah, turn back just a page to the prophet Haggai. It's in the second year of Darius that God moved upon the hearts of two men in particular, Haggai and Zechariah. If you want to know their histories, they're almost identical. Their ministries greatly overlap one another. And both of them, as we mentioned with Haggai, it's true with, uh, uh, as we mentioned with Zechariah, it's true with Haggai as well. Both of them place definitive timestamps of certain prophecies that came to them. I think Haggai perhaps was about two months or so preceding Zechariah. But outside of that, they were contemporaries. In Haggai chapter uh, number one, this is in the sixth month of Darius' reign in the second year, you have the first prophecy that God gives to Haggai. In the seventh month of the same year, there's the second prophecy in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, that's given to Haggai. It's just a short period later in the eighth month, you have the first prophecy that is given to Zechariah. And then in the ninth month of the second year of, of uh, Darius, in Haggai chapter 2 and 10 and following, you have Haggai's third prophecy. 
And then the next two date stamps that you get in chapter 1 and chapter 7 fulfill the second and third prophecies that are given to Zechariah. I show you that not for a testing, but that you can see how interwoven these two prophets are. And their purpose really is identified in the same united means. It is to get the people of God moving forward. But God directed their paths in a little different distinction. In Haggai, his two chapters, I like to consider that the reason it's only two chapters is they could not survive a third chapter. He would do so by, by blatantly blunt type preaching. He's not there to coddle them. He's there to point their fault, tell them what's wrong with them, tell them what they're going to do, if, if, uh, tell them rather what God is going to do if they do not correct their way and give them imperatives on what they need to do yesterday. Now, why aren't you doing it? That's the theme of Haggai. Look at Haggai chapter 1. I'll point out a few things. Look at verse 2. He says, Thus speak the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say. That's amazing. The Lord in the prophecy is quoting a uh, Judaistic uh, poet of the time where they would always say, This is not the time to build. This is not the time to build. He's not even referring to them as his people. He said, This people say. This is, uh, th the time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Verse 3, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and his, or rather this house, lieth in wait. When you come to that sealed house, it's not a reference to the ceiling, uh, but it's the reference to the overlayment of wood on the side of their houses. It was something traditionally only found in palaces. But yet, it would seem that during this period of time, these 16 years of famine and war, and uh, at times where the building of God could not be built, it would seem during these 16 years they made time to build their own houses. And they built them with some of the greatest material that was present, which leaves an honest student to say, where did a bunch of immigrants get all that fine wood? You know where they got it? It was laying around at the construction site by the temple. They put it in their own houses. God saw them. In fact, if you come down to verse number four, he said it is time. In verse number five, consider your ways. In verse number eight, he gives them three imperatives. Go up to the mountain, bring the wood, and build the house. That's a three-point outline right there. Get to it. And really, you come down to verse number 12. The whole motive behind the words of Haggai the prophet, the Lord God had sent him and noticed their obedience. And the people did fear before the Lord. You know what they did? They went to the mountain. They brung the wood. They started building on the house. And that's really the theme of Haggai. In fact, from the time of their going forth up the mountain to the time they're built is four years. Could have built that temple four times in the 16 years that it laid in wait. But God's gracious, isn't he? He didn't just send them Haggai. They sent him Zechariah. In Zechariah's text, he's not pointing at their sealed houses. He's not yelling at them fervently, passionately, in righteous indignation to go up the mountain, bring the wood, and build the building. Zechariah is one of encouragement. He causes them to be incurred, encouraged in the fact that they can view the promises of God. And certainly there are so many promises 
in which Zechariah will have revealed unto them. One of the greatest promises there is the presence of Christ as being a major theme in the Scriptures. In fact, in these 14 chapters of Zechariah, he'll at times refer to the coming of the Christ as a branch, something that you find Isaiah and Jeremiah speaking of. He'll give great prediction concerning Christ that is found in the sixth chapter. In chapter number nine, you'll have the familiar passages encountered in the New Testament where Jesus Christ will come riding into Jerusalem toward the temple. And he gives great description of that years before that would ever occur. Zechariah will speak of Jesus Christ as being a shepherd. Zechariah will predict the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That important phrase there in chapter 12 and verse 10, that they will look on him whom they have pierced. And he concludes with a final prophecy concerning Christ of his coming to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's encouraging them. Seventy years they've been or so in Babylon. Sixteen years the foundation has lied dormant and all the supplies have pilfered themselves away. In four years now, the construction will commence and it be concluded. And during those four years, Zechariah will preach comfort and encouragement to their heart. And the central theme will be the coming Messiah. He'll come into this temple. Now history records that there's been a number of temples throughout the scriptures. We know, of course, of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple that was built in 966 A.D. And it was destroyed in 586 B.C. The temple we're speaking of here is Zerubbabel's temple. And it would serve in great ministry uh, for the children of Israel all the way really to about 169 B.C. during the Hasmonean dynasty. And it will be greatly damaged during the war. And Herod will take it and he will rebuild it in a sense. Actually a better phrase might be to repair it. And he'll expand it. In some great regard, the temple that is being built by, under the ministries of Haggai and, and Zerubbabel and Joshua and Zechariah is at its root the same edifice by which Christ will be present there on his eighth day. It's the same structure. Zechariah is one of constant encouragement. He'll encourage them despite the constant Gentile persecution. He encourages them with this great singular theme. God remembers. God remembers. In fact, that's exactly what Zechariah's name means. Jehovah remembers. You know, looking at verse 1 again, Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, the son of Iddo. It's interesting to search their names out. Berkiah... His name means Jehovah will bless. Ido, his name means an appointed time. Really, that tells the tale of the prophecies of Zechariah. God remembers his promises. God remembers his covenant. God remembers his people. God seeds the deeds of his people. God will bless the faith of his people. That's Berkiah. The God that remembers is the God that blesses. And God will always bless in his appointed time. That's really the theme. God remembers. When God remembers and blesses, He will ultimately restore His people. 
The theme of Zechariah is one of prophetic history from the times of Gentiles, from their captivity to an end of all times. That's what Zechariah, these 14 chapters are. God remembers. If you have your Bibles, turn, if you will, to that last passage. 137th Psalm. Now, some Bible students believe that Haggai or Zechariah was used of God to pen this psalm. If David were to have done it, it would have to be strangely prophetical for him, for it opens up with by the rivers of Babylon. I think perhaps if Zechariah or Haggai were not the ones to pen this, this 137th psalm, then certainly it was one that had experienced very similar things that they had. You see, as I look through the 137 Psalms, we find here the memory of a captive. I want to take a minute. I want you to read through it with me. I'll read it. Just follow along. But 137 Psalm, he says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they that wasted us required us of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. You see the mocking? You're a captive in a near broken people in a pagan country. You're heartbroken. You've lost Zion. The temple of Solomon is no more. The city walls are completely breached. The houses are burnt down. Thousands have been taken captive. Parasitic type enemies now have went in and claimed what had belonged to your family for generations and generations and generations. And now you're by the river of Babylon. And your captives to add misery to your pain say, sing us a song of Zion. I wonder if that was not the Psalms of degrees in the 122nd and 3rd and 24th where the psalmist would proclaim, Look into the hills from whence cometh our help. Our help cometh from the Lord that made heaven and earth. Or perhaps they would sing the psalm of the 122nd. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. All the reflections of the temple, sing us of the songs of Zion. Tell us how wonderful it was that the glory of God was encapsulated around Jerusalem. Tell us of how wondrous the temple was. Tell us of the walls that God was going to bring peace into. Sing us of the songs of Zion. It was utter mockery and utter shame. They wasted of us, required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. He asked a question in verse 4, the psalmist does. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can I have exuberance? How can I have hope? How can I have joy? How can I have peace? I'm surrounded by the wicked Chaldean tongue. He chatters not in the Hebraic sense. I hear not the precious word of God. I hear not the wanderers clanking about the city of Jerusalem. I'm in a strange land with pagan gods. Verse 5, he commits something. He said, if I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom 
in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it. Not R-A-I-S-E. Not exalt it. Raise it. Destroy it. Raise it even to the foundations thereof. The psalmist is reflecting to the time the Edomites and their wickedness would say it's not enough to conquer it, tear it all down. Israel in her history has had many an enemy that cried aloud, raise it, raise it, burn it down to the foundation. I could not for a moment but consider some of the chanting that is heard today around the world. Raise it, raise it, destroy it. Note here, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom. If you want to find out God's promises towards the children of Eden, go back and look over the book of Obadiah. One of the only prophecies that God gives to the non-Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the Jews, with the exception that the sin of Edom committed against her, and at the end of it, it will not be Jerusalem that is raised. It will be Edom that is forgotten. Verse number 8, note this. He begins with Babylon. He's going to wrap up with Babylon. Listen carefully to the words. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed? How did the psalmist know it? You remember at the beginning? Jeremiah had prophesied all the things concerning Babylon. Habakkuk had prophesied much concerning the outcome of Babylon. All of these children of Israel carried away in captivity knew the end game, knew what God was going to do to Babylon. My, that does not surprise us. Do we not remember Daniel's uh, interpretation of the king's vision? That there would come another kingdom after Nebuchadnezzar? Every Jew in Scripture, every Jew in Babylon that would adhere to Scripture knew the promises of God concerning, Jeru uh, concerning Babylon. Notice what he says. Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. That's potent, isn't it? He's talking about your conqueror that will defeat and destroy you. He'll be happy. Just as though you've had your happiness making us sing the songs of Zion in this pagan, godless country. Mark these words, Babylon. Your end's coming. Notice verse number 9. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stone. There's no spiritual language in that. You know what he's saying? Babylon, God remembers. God remembers, O Babylon. Yes, right now, in this period of time, you do what thou willest. You mock, and you scourge, and you steal, and you pillage, and you drink, and you party. You think it around Daniel chapter 4 and 5. You have your parties and you drink with all those dedicated temple items that belong to the Almighty God. You do that, old Babylon. You do that. But God has prophesied. And the thing about our God, our God remembers. And our God in His appointed time will see it come to pass. I don't know for sure if Zechariah wrote the 137th Psalm. But it fits so closely to the very passages of Zechariah. You see, we're in slightly a different time frame than Zechariah is, but the message is still the same for believers this day. God remembers. 
Sometimes we, in walking with God, sometimes you and I, in uh, obeying God, become somewhat unmotivated. We sometimes, like the Hebrew children of old, misplace our priorities. We sometimes have indifference. We sometimes have things outside the rim of our control, like famine that occur, that cause us to wonder if God has forgotten us. We sometimes have adversaries that seek to persecute us sore. We some have those that laugh and ask like scorners, Peter mentioned this, that would come in the last day saying, where is the promise of thy coming? For since the fathers died, things have continued as they may. Well, the prophecies of Zechariah ring true. God remembers. There's some times while we're waiting on God, and I submit to you that waiting on the timing of the Almighty God is one of the most challenging things that a believer will ever do. We're always ready to move forward or to run backwards. But wait on the good timing of the gracious God is a hard thing to do. Many a Christian has undermined the will of God in their life because they will not wait. And one of the great reasons why we cannot wait at times is we think God has somehow forgotten us. Zacharias prophecies ring true. God has not forgotten. And God will bless in His appointed time. Let's stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.